Hi there, Glocal Citizens. It's Florence Adu, your host for the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around doing something in the world. This week, I'm having one of those my guest needs no introduction moments because I have with me Wynton Marcellus, who is an award-winning, internationally acclaimed musician, composer, and band leader, an educator, and a leading advocate of American culture. He has created and performed on an expansive range of music from quartets to big bands, chamber music ensembles to symphony orchestras, and tap dance to ballet, expanding the vocabulary of jazz and classical music to a vital body of work that places him among the world's finest musicians and composers. He is currently the managing and artistic director of Jazz at Lincoln Center, and he is a world-renowned trumpeter and composer. His latest album, which is The Ever Funky Lowdown, is a timely addition to the contemporary commentary on the state of humanity. And I'll just give you all a little background here. We're one day out from the 2020 elections. So I feel like this is a bit serendipitous that I have this opportunity to speak with such a great thinker on this at this time. So, Wynton, welcome to the podcast. Tell us more right. about you, where you're from, and where you're local. Well, first, I, I want to thank you for having me. Florence, it's a pleasure. I love the name, Glocal. That's beautiful. Thank you. And uh, I love your intro, too, what you're aspiring to. Um, I'm from New Orleans. My father's a jazz musician. Mm-hmm. And uh, I grew up in the culture and the tradition. And I, I had the uh, good fortune of working with the great Yakub Adi from Ghana. And uh, we wrote a piece called Congo Square. Mm-hmm. And we it took me 10 years to figure out what they were playing. Oh, wow. And, uh, <laughs> I'm not joking. <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote one piece and it was really, really sad. And then it took me another 10 years to just figure out with him kind of how to make our music work with the music they were playing, very traditional music, African music in two times, mm-hmm. got people's music with traditions. Mm-hmm. Not an easy alchemy, you know, not easy to figure out how to come together and have things that would be meaningful and significant and difficult for both ensembles to play and then to play together. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was one of the great experiences of my life to be with him and learn with him and write some music with him. So I'm honored to talk with you and I'm all about locality. Okay. Wonderful. Wonderful. Exactly. So how would you describe your craft specifically? I mean, I went through all of the biography, but now you, this person who's been in the business for all this time, how would you describe your craft right now? When you you say my craft, you mean from a technical standpoint, bring me closer to what you're asking me. So I would say where, where your craft is the most, where your passion meets the thing that you do every day. I work on what I do all the time and every day. Mm-hmm. So in terms of technical things, what I choose to study, what I hear, I study all kinds of things, mm-hmm. so all, t- all different styles and types of music. And I try to find the thing that they have most have in common that I can also access. Some things you can't access. Like if I'm listening to Bulerias music, you know, I can figure out what they're doing with the form. I can figure a little something about the melody, but <clears throat> it's very difficult for me to just hear a form that fast in time or play something on it. I would, it would take me years to learn that. I told you, it took me 10 years to, to get with Yakub's music. So one funny thing exchanged between he and I, he said he was describing a drum rhythm. He said, this is a royal rhythm. So I started to laugh. I said, man, I'm from Kenner, Louisiana. It don't sound royal to me. And he said, 
that is why you never played correctly. So oh, <laughs> sounds very guy. <laughs> it's like it's like it's like a type of thing. I mean, he was saying it with love, so you know we laughed about it. But mm-hmm. I'm a nonstop study. You know, I'm trying to always figure out how to become a better musician, how to learn how to write better counterpoint, mm-hmm. be more sophisticated harmonically, great with my instrumentation, how to develop different forms and write melodies and longer pieces that have a form and a shape that are original and things that you've never heard, how to play better on my instrument and get more with other musicians who are serious and the great orchestra we have, how we can all work on our arranging and consolidate more of our music in more and more different uh, forms and styles. Everything from the music Yakubin and were playing to uh, Afro-Cuban music to the American popular song, New Orleans music, uh, new compositions that don't have a name, things with symphonic orchestras. I work in a wide range of music and always trying to strive for excellence and come up with the most sophisticated but yet earthy kind of art I can come up with, like in the spirit of the greatest of the tradition of jazz. Okay, I get it. I get it. So speaking of tradition and where you come from, you grew up in New Orleans. <laughs> New Orleans. And you, and so this concept of Congo Square, for our listeners, can you give us a little bit more in-depth on Congo Square as a place, as a birthplace for your music, for jazz music? Well, in the slavery of America, most of the slave owners were Protestant, and they came from a British tradition. New Orleans was French. So in the Protestant and in the British tradition, there was no playing of drums at all of African slaves from different places. Of course, now, as as people stayed in America, they became more Americanized than African. In New Orleans, because it was French, people had a middle class of Creoles which was the French and their mistresses who were African and their kids. And then there was Congo Square, which people could, slaves in New Orleans could sell things on a Sunday. They could petition for their own freedom and they could file a grievance against a master. They very seldom won, but they had the opportunity, whereas in the rest of America, they didn't. Mm-hmm. Every Sunday, starting in the, in the early, in the 1700s, could be 1725, Africans would get together, they had a marketplace, and they would play their music and they would dance. It's traditional dances that as time passed, the dances became more Caribbean, but Afro-Caribbean. It still had a kind of deep African root, a lot like Afro-Cuban music and Haitian music. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then when New Orleans was sold, I mean, when Louisiana was sold to the Americans in 1804, the Louisiana Purchase, then the Americans started to try to figure out how to tear Congo Square down, how to keep Africans from playing drums. Ironically, Haitians had left because of their uh, revolution. Rich Haitians, their only wealth was in slaves. New Orleans was French. The Haitians couldn't find anywhere to go because the thought was, man, these wild slaves from Haiti are going to come and infect our population with the desire to be free. New Orleanians, who were French, wanted a larger French population. White New Orleanians wanted more French because they, they didn't want Americans to come in, so they welcomed the Haitians. The Haitians came in, and they gave it another shot in the arm with an Africanization in the style of Haiti. And then eventually, when you got around 18, in the 1850s, the Americans did enough. They landscaped, they ran the military through there, they did everything they could, and eventually people stopped playing in Congo Square. But the spirit of Congo Square continued, and that's why you had so much drum music come out of New Orleans, why jazz was born in New Orleans, why 
all of the forms that come from the combination of drums and a rhythm section, jazz, swing, rock and roll, country, western, all these forms that use drums are indebted to Congo Square because it was the only place in America that uh, Africans could play African-derived music on, on drums and music that's existing two times. More important than the drums mm-hmm. is that... Dun, 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 dun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That bimbe rhythm to play in the two times gives you a kind of polar out of polarity experience that's not Western. Right. So that's very important that the New Orleans uh the New Orleans drums could do that. Okay. Okay. So transporting you out of New Orleans for a minute, and I want to go back there because mm-hmm. I have a little bit of history with New Orleans in the recent past. I want to get an understanding of kind of why the where. How did you come from being in New Orleans to being a New Yorker? Well, I always wanted to get out of New Orleans because it's very prejudiced and ignorant, you know? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. And it hit me hard. I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to get out because I figured the North would be better. And uh, I got a scholarship to study music at Juilliard. Mm-hmm. So I just had to get from New Orleans to New York. I went to a summer camp called Tanglewood. Oh, and I moved up to I moved up to New York a month before school. And then I was in New York. And that was in 1979. Okay. And I've been here since then. So to give you a sense of how long ago that was, 41 years. Sure. Sure. So I've been here for that amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. So have you lived anywhere else besides New York in that no, time? Only New Orleans and New York. Okay. Okay. So then when I ask my glocal speak question, I kind of want to direct you a little bit and Get a little, again, back to New Orleans. So this is where I ask my guests to, we want to hear what you hear. So we hear what you've heard. And so I ask my guests to share a word, phrase, or saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you came to value it as a local speak. <laughs> word, meaning, or phrase, let me think. Okay. I think one that I, we used to say all the time would be, where yet? Where yet? Where yet? Okay, that means where you at, mm-hmm. but it can mean where you at, like where are you from a global standpoint, from a geographic standpoint, mm-hmm. which street are you at, mm-hmm. where you at. That means where you at on this issue that we're talking about, mm-hmm. okay. where you at. Yeah. And then it can also mean where you at, like I don't necessarily like, ah. like what I'm hearing from you. Uh-huh. Or uh-huh. it can mean where you at, <laughs> where you at, that means then you you saying it. Okay. <laughs> and the, the other phrase with that is, you feel me? You feel me? Sure. It's deeper than, do you understand me? Yes. So we don't say, you feel me? And you be talking? Yeah, you know, I was in Ghana. You feel me? That means I wasn't about to put up with that. You feel me? So that's another good one. You feel me? Okay. Okay. I like them both. One of my friends, she went to school at Xavier. And so she said, I hope he doesn't say we're about to go make some groceries. <laughs> we got all that kind of stuff. Make groceries, stand on the banquet, you know, yeah. Right, we exactly, we exactly. We got a lot of stuff like, and we also, another thing that we do that I love is we say, we sing stuff in a minor third and we always say, yeah, with stuff. Like we say, I'm mm-hmm. going down there, yeah. I don't know what you're talking about, no, bro. Boy, I'm talking to Florence, yeah. What you doing? Yeah, I'm getting down there, yeah, bro. So we also we use the word bra a lot too. Yeah, but uh-huh. now that's uh-huh. in my time. Now they have different slang they use now. Sure. It's not, I'm not up on all of it. I mean, sure. it's, a, it's a lot of a different way that they talk. 
Yeah, yeah. But I think there's a lot that's still there. And so so let me ask you this as well. So just thinking about jazz and music, again, going back to the New Orleans side of things, have you understood post-Katrina? Because I think there was a pre-Katrina New Orleans and music, and then there's a post-Katrina New Orleans and music. Can you talk a little bit more about that and how you see not only the creative side, but I guess also the business side of, of music changing and evolving and rearranging? You know, I don't know really uh, the music of New Orleans pre-Katrina. It was never good business in it. Then, I mean, the hip-hop artists started to make money mm. uh, with what they were doing. But that's a different scene. It was, it's, less more, it's less about music. It's more about social. Like, it's kind of a social thing that they were doing. I, I don't really, I don't know enough to speak intelligently on it. Okay. Then after Katrina, a lot of people not from New Orleans came in. And because I don't live in New Orleans, I don't, I'm not... I don't have really good insight into the dynamics of all the different parts. Mm-hmm. I can only speak to when I was growing up, there was very little money in any of it. Mm-hmm. And the musicians who really could play were playing in spite of whatever was going on. There was no real desire to educate the populace in New Orleans jazz. Mm-hmm. There was tremendous racism always shows up in education and what is virtuous in the culture. Mm-hmm. If you wasn't cracking jokes or acting a fool or exhibiting some type of criminality, you weren't even considered mythologically. You definitely were not in the education system. Mm-hmm. So musicians like Jelly Roll Martin, Louis Armstrong, Danny Parker, the great musicians from New Orleans, nobody was really taught that kind of music unless you came from a family. Like my father's a jazz musician, so I learned about it. Mm-hmm. But my friends, everybody I grew up around, they had no knowledge or idea about the those types of New Orleans customs and traditions. Nobody would be able to tell you about Congo Square or have any have any real understanding of the contemporary struggles, even. Uh, institutions like the Free Southern Theater, where there was theater, nobody from the neighborhoods, they didn't really attend that, that kind of stuff. There was a certain type of ignorance in my time. And when you get to the more popular forms, anything that uh, has heavy pornographic content or profanity or ignorance, then you start to get a lot of the public uh, more engaged in it. And anything that celebrates criminality, of course, it's, it's with the mythology, how people want to look at the Black American. Right. And that's kind of the form that took over in terms of people uh, perceiving New Orleans music and New Orleans culture. Mm. Uh, from a musical standpoint and from a standpoint of Afro-American. And now I don't really, I don't really know. I do know that we have a very, very deep culture. And if we ever started to educate our populace, Black and white people in it, a lot more will come out of it. Now, food is an exception because people still cook good and they know the traditions are passed down in the families. Mm-hmm. So they know how to make gumbo and etouffee and all the kind of dishes that have an African base to them. Sure. I get it. I understand. The music, the jazz of the world is really not based there anymore. It's very much now a New mm-hmm. York, a Paris or, or somewhere else type of scene. And I, I understand that now. So thinking, you said something about no one was playing you had a musical family and that's why you played. So another reason why I'm a big fan is when I was seven, eight years old, we had a music program growing up, right? So my school, public school, mixed school, set, um, busing created a whole different mix of people. So went to the band teacher. So band was starting. That's a band started eight years old, second grade. And he said, you know what? I think you're a trumpet player. So 
<laughs> so for the next six years, I played trumpet. So I played trumpet until I discovered sports. So that was um, that's one thing that we have in common. I still have my trumpet. I haven't played it in years, but I was the only girl for a lot of times, and I was first trumpet for most of that time as well. So, so yeah. But speaking of okay, okay, I see. I understand now. Yeah. The trumpet gods are bringing us together. Exactly. Exactly. So I bring that up because thinking about education and the things, the work that you do in education. So let's start talking more about like how you have diversified yourself um, as an educator, as a composer, as a maker of creative content. How do you view education, particularly for young children in music? And how, what are your kind of visions and the things you participate on that level? First, I want to ask you, when you discovered sports, were you in track? Were you like a high jump? Oh, yes, 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 yes. Yeah, I, um, yep. What I, did you do? I did the triple jump. <laughs> <laughs> I see you trying to run from me. I got you. Yeah, I love the triple jump. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, I think that uh, everything is connected to me. Uh-huh. The triple jump is connected to the trumpet. If you think about just fundamental techniques, mm. You got to work on them every day. You have mechanics of things. You have a rhythm. You have emotion. And you have a kind of repetition that you have to go through to master. So then you have a spiritual thing. That's not a, you can't practice it. You can only embody it. Right. And if you embody that spiritual mm-hmm. thing, you get other benefits. Mm-hmm. And all the other things that come with it. With, with music is, of course, a group activity. Whereas the triple jump, you do it maybe on a team. But you, that's very much individualistic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think teaching and all every it's all interpreting a mythology. So mm-hmm. what do we all meet on around the world? We meet on the level of mythology. And how do we meet in that way? Oh, my mama told me this. or my daddy said that or the story like Yakub would tell me stories. Or mm-hmm. The mythology is the most important thing in your life. How you are represented symbolically in your culture and in your own mind determines who you are and how you experience living. Mm-hmm. So I think that uh, that's what I teach. That's what I write. And that's what I play. It's why I play. It's for a kind of symbolic representation of people, of human beings, of the world. It's like when you say a global citizen, that means something. It's, it's an it's a, a in-depth human mythology that says we are all connected by one thing that makes us what we are. So let's find that common thread. We express ourselves in many different ways, but we express ourselves in one way. And uh, for a lot of people, the only thing that's most difficult to understand is how to ride the wave of polarity. It's like every human being is male, female comes together, and then you have another human being. So that person that comes has been someone who rode the wave of polarity. Mm-hmm. And the things divide or they mm-hmm. combine to create new things. And uh, it's like that yin-yang sign. You look at both sides of it, but the key to that sign is that little line that's in the middle. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's what I teach. And that's what makes you successful in your playing and your jumping. You find the balance between things and you ride the wave because there's tremendous energy and friction that comes from opposites, mm-hmm. the electricity. Anytime you get a friction of opposites. So I'm condensing my philosophy and theory into one thing. And so it doesn't matter if I'm writing a piece of music, if I'm playing it, if I'm teaching, if I'm talking to you, I'm talking about the same thing. And uh, you and I already, before we got on and we started talking, we touched on a lot of things. We didn't speak that much to each other, but we things that we talked about were all very basic, fundamental things about being alive. Right, right, right. I love that, the idea of mythology. So that then kind of is a great segue into your current work, 
which is the ever funky lowdown, which oh, is God. deep. <laughs> it's, it's funky. It's, yes, exactly. So I've read about it and how it came to be, but tell us more about how that piece became what it is now in this time. Well, you know, I always talk with my little brother. I have a brother named Ellis. He's not a musician. We call him the Oracle because he reads everything. He studies everything. Mm -hmm. So for years, I've been talking with the old Oracle. We get up get up in the morning and I always have a, a statement. I say, his nickname is Lut. That's another thing about New Orleans people. Everybody got a nickname. A nickname. <laughs> so yeah, his name is Ellis, but we call him Lut. Okay. So I always say, tell me what I'm thinking today, Lut. And then Lut starts to tell me what I'm thinking. So <laughs> it became like a joke. Like this morning, me and Lut talked a long time about the presidential election and what the states, what the mathematic breakdown of it was and what he saw. So of all the years of talking, I started to take notes whenever I would talk with Lut. Let's say this. Uh, so we, I, so I started to get these themes to come to me. It's the ever funky lowdown. I started thinking about the ever funky lowdown. Like how funky all this stuff is because you're always being duped. So I had a real big fallout with one of my friends over things that the Obama administration was doing. And he was always writing in the newspaper how he loved it. And I was saying, man, these policies are, <laughs> I don't know if I would love this policy. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I started to think about how, why are we so gullible as people? And why do we just look at somebody's skin color or they're this or they're that and think that means they're going to do something good for us? And I always think about, my father would always say, if I would tell him what somebody was, he would say, don't tell me what they are. Tell me who they are. Like if I say a woman that plays trumpet, a woman that plays trumpet, who is the woman? Well, he didn't want it. And that made me start to think about the ever funky. And then I conceived of it as a circus, what kind of time changes with a carnival barker. Then what would I have him say? And I mean it. I like the number 12. I always write pieces with 12 movements, 12 progressions, 12 bars to a blues, 12 months to a year, well, three sections of four. You know, you can divide it in different kind of mystical ways. So I figure seven and five, kind of golden section, golden ratio number. Mm -hmm. It'd be seven objectives that a person hustling you has. And there's people who've hustled the populace down throughout time. It's not relegated to now. So it's seven things mm -hmm. I want you to accept. It's like gang mentality. Then I'm going to give you five prizes. And the five prizes, I wanted them to be prizes that both the left and the right agree on. So when I give you your prize, it's not going to be a prize that uh, only Republicans like. It's going to be a prize that Republicans and Democrats agree. Yes, this is a great prize. Mm -hmm. So uh, then I was going to introduce a wild card, which was going to be a heroine. Well, in my big pieces, a woman is always the hero. I don't know why. You know, it's because of my mama or. I just always, uh, I could go back to Blood on the Fields, the woman sang the main role. That was like 1992. Mm -hmm. All Rise, a woman sings the prayer, All Rise. That was 1999. Uh, from the plantation to the penitentiary, 2007, it's a lady singing from the plantation to the penitentiary, singing the song. And in this piece, I pick Fannie Lou Hamer, who was right. a great civil rights activist. And I only pick Fannie Lou because my mama loved Fannie Lou. So in the 60s and 70s, my mom was always talking about Fannie Lou, Fannie Lou, Fannie Lou. I even had the women on the piece sing, Fannie Lou, Fannie Lou, Fannie Lou. Because I was thinking about my mama. Whatever you say, she'd go back to Fannie Lou. Yeah, but what about Fannie Lou? What about Fannie Lou? What about Fannie Lou? So, you know, Fannie Lou comes to try to save you from being fooled. But in the end, you want to be fooled because you would rather mess over some other people than for all of y'all to have something. It's like the old joke. You know, you say, God comes to somebody and says, 
whatever you want, I will grant you. So you have the time for one wish I will grant. So the person gets ready to give the wish and he says, he or she says, no, no, no. The only thing about this wish is whatever I give you, I'm going to give your neighbor twice. So the person thinks for a second and says, put out one of my eyes. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. So it's like this whole thing, that kind of predatory way of looking at other people instead of symbiotic. Mm-hmm. So if you look just on this on this call, you're a trumpet player. You travel from one place you are to another place. I'm a trumpet player. I travel from one place to another place. You love the music. I love music. You're interested in cultural transformation through communication. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in cultural transformation. You play, you were in the athletics. I was in the athletics. You know what it's like to win and to lose. I know what it's like to win and to lose. That's just a few of the things, major things that you and I think about in the same. That's what when I read the name Glocal, I thought it's a certain type of intelligence of bringing the opposites together, global and local in one. See, you're riding a wave of that yin-yang. That's what we're talking about. And this stuff is kind of natural and it doesn't require a kind of degree in philosophy to understand it. Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so then now coming to actually production. So I think a lot of times we have this magical output from creatives, but we don't understand how it is layered and how the business of it happens. Uh, Particularly now when we know that a lot of creatives, particularly musicians who play live music are struggling because we don't have this opportunity to gather. So if you broke down how you were able to, I mean, being, you know, having your, your role at Jazz and Lincoln Center obviously is part of that foundation, but how do you structure and how do you manage the business of putting together an album and getting the work produced? Well, we have our own record label, so we put it out. Mm-hmm. And what is the label? It's called Blue Engine. Blue Engine? Okay. And we have to raise money for everything that we do. Sure. Because without education, it has to be philanthropic. Like, oh, you have to put out stuff that's semi-pornographic. Or, I mean, mm-hmm. You don't have a lot of market latitude when it comes to music. Mm-hmm. It's too many. First, there's no way to tell the difference in quality of things. So mm-hmm. once you open a Pandora's box of kind of coded a personality, music became a lot like politics. If you are liked, you sell records. Then... The next step was to say, if you sell records, you then are good. And it's like the politician can get a lot of votes. It doesn't mean they're good. Right. Or then it becomes cult of the personality. Whereas now we have a kind of celebrity class that the only time something is important is if somebody says if there's some celebrity or something. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) the lack of education makes you unable to discern things. So for us, Jazz Lincoln Center was always with me. I had a career already. It was how much of my career can I give up to work on behalf of an institution and get people of the community gathered around this idea. And we all raise money and work together and figure out how to transform our culture with a higher quality thing that it costs us all to give to the public or have people invested in it and increase the number of people around the world who are willing to invest in this vision. Mm -hmm. So that's what Jazz Lincoln Center has done since the beginning. We've been unbelievably successful but we need to be much more successful. So, and we started, we just laid out what we were going to do. We have four branches. We curate concerts. We probably have hired more jazz musicians than any entity ever throughout the history of music. Uh, so we program and curate those concerts. We uh, have education. We have 12 education programs that touch on people of all ages and of all kinds. 
We have an archival branch, which is recordings and libraries and all things that document not just what we do, but we might have the largest playable library, of course, one of the largest in the world, I'm sure, maybe the, of recordings in the history of jazz, Duke Ellington's music, and other uh, composers and arrangers that we've played it. So it, it's, you don't have to go through an archive and figure out how to play it. And then ceremonial. We have festivals and we give awards and we do those types of things. So we started with those four basic areas and we continue in those areas. And we have a three-pronged mission statement, which is that we play, we entertain through performance and uh, we teach through education, through our education programs, and we advocate. That's our role as cultural citizens. And we try to advocate people to check the music out. Then we are, uh, we built our own hall. It's on 59th Street in Manhattan. It's called the House of Swing. It is three concert space, a 1,200 seat space, 500 seats in a club. Dizzy's this 120 seats. And um, in terms of recording, I've made, I don't know, 150, 200 records. I made a lot of recordings. With the Ever Funky Lowdown, our hall staff built booths and put everything up in a day. Our engineer, Todd Whitelock, we've been working since we were both young. So we have like a kind of relationship and love for one another. So we know we're going to work, kill ourselves, and that we're going to do the best job we can possibly do. It's not a matter of what we get paid. We're trying to do things that we think will stand the test of time. So we, we're acutely aware of the need for very high quality. And we uh, come in, and two days, we did basically nine hours of recording. The orchestra, all fantastic. Mm-hmm. We've been together for a long time. They can play the hardest music in the short amount of time. Mm-hmm. They're also arrangers and composers. The three singers... Young ladies, all in their 20s. Now, we had worked with them as much, so we really were proud of them. The one singer, Camille Thurman, played in our orchestra for a year, so she knew she's perfect pitch. She sang the middle part, the most difficult harmony part. But uh, Ashley Pizzotti and, and Christy, they were great. Doug Wamble played guitar. You know, we have a kind of familiar thing. We know each other for years. Uh-huh. So we come in and we make our records with a minimum fuss. And uh, it's, the emphasis is on musicianship, not on post-production. Okay. And we come in and we play. And um, if you can't really play, you're not going to be in there with us. Sure. It's just we have a certain pride about what we do. And it's not uh, it's not mean, but an orchestra is rough. When yeah. we get people to come play with it, they're like, don't. <laughs> yeah. I say, what you think about that? <laughs> Sounds I'm running. <laughs> you know that we do. They're hard to, they're hard to deal with. Yeah. Now we have an audition process. So we audition people, but... You know, it's how we have a turnover every 16 or 17 years. So, Oh, wow. Okay. So it's a yeah. proper career. You know, it's just it's a, in terms, we wish there were more orchestras of jazz around the world. It's yeah. one of our goals and our objectives. Yeah. But uh, our business model in terms of our institution, we have like a $55 million a year budget. But this year, our budget has had to go down to $32 million, and it's probably going to go to 22 because of the pandemic and the inability to earn money. But we're always working. We're raising money. We're providing a public service. And uh, everything we do is done with the utmost integrity. Like we're a team of people that are dedicated on the staff also. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. I love it. So speaking of spreading your wings, when you think about what's next for you internationally, what are some things that you'd like to see, some things that you'd like to get involved in? How do you see yourself particularly where Africa's concerned, because that's all that's close to my heart. So tell us more about what you see in that I, space. I wish I could. I see so much potential and ability in Africa. Mm-hmm. And I have such a love for it. Like, just, I mean, it's a big place, but 
of the people I have interfaced with, with Yakub, with the musicians in South Africa, like Duduzo Makatini, we should talk with him. He would be a great interview. Mm-hmm. Call him Duduzo. He's fantastic. There's another woman from South Africa that's a great composer. I think you and her would be really simpatico. Mm-hmm. Her name is Tandi Ntuli. Okay. T-H-A-N-D-I-N-2. She's a great composer. And uh, she has a similar type of uh, of energy that you have in terms of the depth of her intelligence and her desire to make something happen. And also her acuity and her honesty. Mm. So I think Tandi, you know, I mean, all much younger than me, of course, but I just wish I had been in, in my 20s. I wish I could have been here, you know, with working with, right. but I see tremendous growth. And I see it more for my students and younger people who are going to come up to create another type of world because the continent is so full of so much youth and talent and vigor. Mm-hmm. And uh, this art form is so so full of information, that this cross-cultural pan-African. Sure. And it's, it's full of such pride and dignity and memory. And it's so unknown by so many people. The Afro-American has no knowledge of the music virtually at all. Right. So as you know, being an American, you know, I think there could be a mutual discovery that could take place in the younger people. And it would actually cause, if there was a mutual discovery of this music, it would actually cause a renaissance and a revolution. So mm-hmm. anything I could do to be a part of that with, with our education, with our scores, with our teaching, because we are not just one race. We're all of the races, Jazz and Lincoln Center. Right. But though we are all one race, we don't put relegate African and Afro-American thinking to the lower level. We are extending the agency. We are extending it because jazz was formed and developed by people like Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington, and they came from an Afro-American perspective, but they didn't perpetuate racism and separatism and all the things that are part of the American and the colonial experience. They were the opposite of that. So I see like even in me talking to you, I feel a tremendous sense of, of hope. And, you know, when I was with Yakub and them, studying with them, just the kind of naturalness we had, of course, we cult- our cultures are different. But when it came down to playing music and learning and talking to one another, and when I deal with the younger musicians and I see them, there's tremendous potential and possibility. And mm-hmm. I, but I need to be put in space because it's too foreign to me. Any way I can mm-hmm. get in space with my organization, mm-hmm. because we're all dedicated in the sure. same way. Sure. We want to be in space. We want to teach. We want to play. We want to learn. Any of these types of things we would love to do. Okay. That's a call to action, listeners. So we have able professionals that really want to share and cast that wider net of the value and the values of the creative arts across the continent. So when you say that, I know that you have the Essentially Ellington program. So you have done some some work with bands across globally. So tell us more about how that, that works and how you've identified talent and continue to cultivate in that space. Well, the thought was that people don't know the music of Duke Ellington. Ah, okay. There's a thought, it's an Afro-American composer. Every time you play their music, you're doing a tribute to them. Right. We're not doing a tribute to them. Yeah. We're playing their music. Mm-hmm. So how can we get younger people to play his music and learn the meaning of this country and culture through his music? Mm. So we we're going into 26 years or something. We've been unbelievably successful, transformed the lives of many younger people. We've had elements of it in the U.K., and in Australia. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you have to have a big band to, to enter it. Right. So it's kind of different. But I remember yeah. I had two, two guys from Cameroon came in New York years ago. They said to be 17 or 18 years ago. And I just met them on the street and they recognized me. We started trumpet players. We started talking. I invited them to my house. They came up. We sat down. 
we drink some coffee or something. They pulled out two pieces of music. It was essentially Ellington music. <laughs> said, oh, wow. How did y'all get this music? They said a guy we knew had copies of it. So your music travels. Yes. Yes. And, uh, you know, yeah, I would love to have anything like essentially Ellington, Weebop, any of our education, Swing University, even better, not for musicians. We have listening classes that would be even better. Mm-hmm. You know, if I could just teach a listening class, I have an online listening class that I taught this summer. Mm-hmm. that I would happily, uh, happily teach to people. And it shows you what jazz is, demystifies it, lets you hear and see. Right. Uh, and all this kind of stuff is important. Listeners at this point are more important than musicians. Absolutely. Absolutely. I listened to one of your, your blues, about the blues sessions on YouTube. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's so simple. And it's so easy. So it brings a creative art to anyone because it's just that's a right. 20 minute class and now I know how to write a blues song. And so right. it's just that simple. And you can create the noise and the chords on pretty much any surface. Like we, mm-hmm. we feel this limitation of I need an instrument, particularly when you think about the continent, because there are different instruments and there obviously are not like horns and pianos all around the place. So the idea of as you were, you know, tapping out a, a beat, that right. can happen. Yeah. So I want to go to um, one of my other standard features of the podcast, which is my mindset hack. So this is when I ask, what is your favorite or an innovative mindset hack? So this is one that you can imagine or one that you know of. And a mindset hack is just a way of thinking that just hacks into a different level of being who you are. Okay. But what am I, what, tell me, what am I supposed to say what I hear or what am I? (laughs) So I'll give you an example. So one of my guests, their mindset hack recently was to shed the struggle mentality. So that's how they approach every day is just let me shed that mentality. So others, it's meditation. Others, it's just some other rhythmic or often ritualistic thing. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for mine is to perceive the oneness in all things. Ah, yes. Yes. That. That's what I'm always trying to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, because the there's a lot going on and it's all one thing. Mm-hmm. That is true. Now, do you think that because sound is so important to you that you can find that more easily? I don't know what easily means. You know, I, mm, okay. Yeah. You know, it depends on the things I have prejudices about or mm-hmm. things I'm ignorant about or the weaknesses I have. It's a struggle for me to find it. So, mm, okay. So it's, it's also the work. Yeah. Yeah. Like I can hear something in people's voices. Like I can hear a lot about you and who you are in your voice. Because mm-hmm. I'm a musician, but also because I always had that kind of talent or skill. Some people's musical skill comes through rhythm. Some come through, you know, uh, some talent comes through nuance, like just, or some have a, a kind of humor. Yeah. With mine, it was always overall form. I could always hear overall form. Mm-hmm. And I could hear the intention in the sound. Why? Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't even know why. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I didn't spend a lot of time on stuff that wasn't really saying anything. Got it. Might have a shiny suit on, but something I could hear. It doesn't make me superior. But when it comes to those things, I knew that. Now, there are other things I still can't hear them. Right. You know, so. Sure. I think. Uh, I can totally relate to exactly what you're saying. Yeah. It's really. We have different it, skill sets. Exactly. Exactly. And we can cultivate them sometimes. But like you said, sometimes we just need to be present in what is ours That's and right. build on what that is. And also recognize and respect what is not ours and others. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because many times we want to lean on our strength and value it more than our weakness. Right. 
Right. When it's actually, it's only value to us. Right. Right. And that's, that's fairly profound because I think we, we just don't believe in weakness and it is just a part of humanity. You know, it's like like a person has tremendous physical beauty. Mm -hmm. Everything that you, they talk about is something beauty. Another person is not here for a lot of physical beauty, but they're unbelievably intelligent. Everything Mm -hmm. will be about intelligence. Another person is, you know, but they have some kind of hair or dress or whatever. We always find something to to give value to. Yeah. And uh, if you perceive the oneness in all things, it has value. Absolutely. Exactly. You know, (laughs) that is the value. Yeah. Yeah. And that brings, it really strikes in my mind a lot about our traditional African spiritual practices and things that we've gotten away from being here, because that is at the core of most spiritual beliefs is that there's a oneness in everything. You know, we wouldn't take for granted the climate or the earth if we believed in were were trained our minds in that way. So this is where education is the foundation of it all. You know, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Somebody will think because they can develop a gun or a bomb and they can kill you. Therefore, their religious belief or their spiritual practice is superior to yours. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Maybe a scientific practice is superior to mine, but your religious belief is much lower. Right. You know, it's not to respect the space of others and what they know and to value it and try to understand it. That's the requisite humility. In jazz, we have the concept of swinging and swing balances improvisation. Improvisation is you and what you can create. Swing is what you can create with someone else. And it implies a difference and a humility. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I like that. So, Winton, we're getting to the close of our conversation. This has been so fun. I really mm-hmm. enjoy. And, you know, in preparing for this, I listened to so many of your different programs. So you have a program called Wednesdays with Winton. So that was very. And then you have um, the Monday night program, which is. Gains domain. Gains yeah. domain. Right. Exactly. So anyone, if you want to get much more into mythology and jazz and and a lot of different concepts about humanity, please do listen. Those will be in the show notes as well, folks. So before we move, I always like to ask a question that kind of gets into a little bit more of the depth of the everyday person that you are. So you, of course, said you're a reader. You read all kinds of things. So tell us about what you're reading these days. Well, I was reading a book called American Founders by a woman named Christina Proenza Coles. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, you got to want to read. I mean, it's full of factual kind of information. Mm-hmm. So that's like the thing that I was reading. Another book, Barracoon. Barracoon. Barracoon, Zora Neale mm-hmm. Hurston. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very interesting book mm-hmm. about the last slave brought to America. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, Zora, Zora Neale, you know, is an inter- interesting writer to know about. Yes, absolutely. Those are two great books. American Founders, is that a, a more contemporary art author? Yeah, it's a contemporary author. And the okay. book is well-researched, so it's not like, you know, it's not fiction. It's not. Sure. It's something you got to want to read. It's, sure. It's just full of good information. Yeah, especially now because we're sitting in in a time where I think we are at the cusp of True. total cultural transformation, if we can manage it. 
if we can manage it, we are at the cusp of it. And I'm, I'm with you. We are. It's coming. Yes. And it will go really well or will not go really well. And part of that being able to go really well is being armed with information. And so particularly about the history of this country, the history of the world, the history of how things are. And so this is where the lines of borders and that whole idea of global citizenship. I really want my listeners to get a sense of that the world is your oyster, ultimately. Right. So And, and remember that history and action is mythology. Mythology is the symbolic language of history, Mm -hmm. and uh, art is the representative of mythology. Wonderful. Right. I'm going to start using that because I love that idea of mythology because it's a word people people know, and they haven't applied it to everyday life. It's like, oh, that's just outside of, but it's, this is exactly what you said, the symbolic representations of who we are. You know, we do it every day. It's part of our everyday selves. So I love that. Yeah. The narrative of human history. Uh-huh. Exactly. In every culture. Yeah. Yes, In every, every culture. culture. Yes, yes, yes. So, Winton, any last words for our listeners before we sign off? No, it just was a pleasure speaking with you. Yeah. And uh, I look forward to more communication and let's start to get a kind of level of uh, communication and information going back and forth that we can lay some foundation for our younger people to come behind us, which you're one of the younger people. But okay. for me, that's what I want to do. Sure. Thank you. Sure. Get sure. back I on love your that. trucking. Yeah. Get back on your horn. <laughs> Don't you let your horn go. You're still a trumpet player. I will. I'm going to pick it up. I'm going home. Pick it up. For Christmas. I'm going to pick it up. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, local All right. citizens. This has been another episode of the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around doing something in the world. You can always catch us at www.glocalcitizenspod.com on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, everywhere you get podcasts, you can find us there. And this episode... I hope that you can also find it on multiple platforms that are not just mine so that you can actually get abreast of what everything that is part of the Wynton Marcellus universe because he has a great, great online presence. As you, as he mentioned, he has so many educational tools and informational tools that are out there for folks. And so until next time, bye for now. Bye for now.